this morning, John chapter 1. Verse 10. It says, He was in the world, and the world was created through him. Yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now you may have heard this before, listening to the news, especially in uh, seasons where there's a lot of conflict around the world. Somebody uh, eventually will say, I wish we could all get along because we are all the children of God. How many of you have heard somebody say that? Just refer to the whole world as the children of God. And it's a very nice sentiment. It's very sweet. It's not biblical. You get a lot of rights when you are born on planet earth as a human being, but you do not get the right to be called children of God. That right has to be given to you. That's what it says. It's a right to all who did receive them. He gave them the right to be the children of God, to those who believe in his name. So you are a lot of things. You are the creation of God. He made every single one of us, everybody whose heart is beating right now on planet earth has been made by God and for God. We are all the creation of God, but we are not all the children of God until you come to a moment in your life where you look at your life and and your sinfulness and your brokenness and your humanity and then you look at Jesus and then you say, I'm trusting and I'm believing not in my name or anybody else's name, but in the name of Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus, when you give your faith to Jesus, you get the right to be called a son of God and a daughter of God. And so that's where we want to start Orphan Sunday this morning. Not with the crisis. The crisis is that there are 147 million children in the world who are fatherless, who are in need. We don't want to start with the problem, although the problem is vast. We want to start with the Father. That you and I, we have a perfect Father in God. Now, depending on what your earthly father was like, that may be a good thing or a bad thing. See, all of us view God through a lot of different lenses. And one of those lenses, one of the primary lenses, is what your earthly father was like. And so when you hear God is our father. If you had a good experience with your earthly father, then that may be no problem for you. You may just receive that. You may immediately know when we refer to God as father exactly what we're talking about because your father was amazing. But then there are others of us whose fathers were a little less than amazing. And when you hear that God is father, that's not something that wells up inside of you. In fact, you may think, well, I'm going to come to God as king because kings are cool and I like kings. Or I'm going to come to God as a lord and I will be his servant. Or I'm going to come to God as healer because I'm sick. Or I'm going to come to God as provider because I'm in need. And all of those are true and God has revealed himself. But some of us are thinking, I'm not going to come to God as father because my experience here with fathers not so great. So I'm not sure, and none of us would say this out loud, but I'm not sure to do with what to do with God as my father. But God is our father to all those who believe In Jesus' name. And what that means this morning is it means you are loved perfectly 
by a perfect father. You know, there are not very many people running around planet earth right now who love you for free. I mean, you could list them on one hand, I would guess, of how many people are going to love you with all of their heart for the rest of their lives, no matter what you do from this point on. That's a limited number of people. But God loves for free. His love comes to you and it comes to me with no strings attached. It's not hooked to the kind of week that you had, that you were able to string together a couple of days of righteousness. And so maybe you're coming in here this morning feeling amazing. You're hoping we do a testimony time because you, you, just, were, you just lived it this week. I mean, you were the real deal and, and uh, you prayed for you know, this week. You didn't pray last week, but you prayed this week and you feel like you got to tell somebody about it. I mean, you were righteous this week. God loves you for free apart from that. Or maybe you were the opposite. And you weren't anything close to righteous. In fact, maybe you didn't even want to be righteous. Holiness was not in your vocabulary this week. But even in that, God loves you for free. And then most of us are probably somewhere in between. And maybe the first step for us today on Orphan Sunday, as we come around the vulnerable children of the world, is not the children. But it's you and I getting in touch with perfect love from a perfect father. I mean, when was the last time that you heard him breathe those words to you? I love you. Unconditionally. Apart from your striving. Apart from your laboring. Not connected to anything that you bring to the table this morning. You are loved. And that is the fuel for us to step into this crisis around the world. And as you saw the statistics, it's not even around the world, it's in our own county. You see those flags, those little orange flags as you were walking in. I don't know if you were able to stop and read the sign, but those are the, numbers of, the number of children who are in foster care in our zip codes which means we took all of the Bayou City Fellowship zip codes and put them together and found out how many foster children were in there and each of them are represented by an orange flag. So when you leave, you can know that that flag, which represents a child in our county in uh, foster care, it's not somebody on the other side of town, it's not somebody in that part of town, it's somebody around the corner from you. Those are our zip codes, which have our name on them. And all we want to do is fueled by the perfect love of a perfect father, is just to step into the arena this morning. To just step into the situation, knowing that none of us can do everything, but all of us can do something. You and I today, we're not going to fix the problem. Even corporately, as much as we can do together, we still are not going to be able to alone to solve every problem when it comes to vulnerable children around the world. But you and I, we can do something to step into the arena and say, this is what I can do. I can't do everything, but I can do this. And I want to do this because I have been loved by a perfect father. I am a son of God and I am a daughter of God. And there are millions of people around the world who don't know that, who aren't experiencing any love from a father, whether from God in their minds and in experience or from a person.
And we want to step into the arena today. And so I've asked a few friends to come and help me. Come on up here, guys. You know, when we talk about orphans and uh, vulnerable children, we're usually talking to adults, and adults are boring. And so I asked uh, some people who are on their way to being adults to help us today. So these are some of our amazing teenagers. They're a little bit nervous. Why don't you give them a round of applause? I love so many things about Bayou City Fellowship, but one of our, my favorites is our student ministry. Um, I don't know what kind of student ministry background you come from. That's 7th grade to 12th grade. But um, our student ministry, they are passionate about a couple of things. They are passionate about Jesus. They are passionate about each other. And they're passionate about helping people wherever people need help. And so if there's any group of people in our church who are bringing justice to those who are currently suffering injustice, it's our student ministry. And so I thought some of them would be perfect to hear from today. All of them are connected uh, to this thing that we're talking about today. This is Colton Parker, and Colton uh, has an adoptive brother from Haiti. I'm going to tell you about him in just a second, and Colton's story. And this is Anna Johnson, and Anna's family is passionate about fostering, and she has an adoptive sister. And this is Desmond Merrill, and Desmond, a star football player at Waller High School, leading the district. I just want to throw that out there. Uh, uh, but um, uh, he uh, has the amazing honor of being an adopted son. And so you're going to hear his story in just a second, too. But we'll start with Colton. Uh, Colton, when he was about 10 years old, he and his older sister Carly uh, found some kind of picture. A picture came to them of a little boy in Haiti. They didn't know this boy. They really didn't know anything about him, I'm thinking. And, um, but his picture was around their house. And uh, Colton, when you, you saw his picture, what did you and your sister start doing? We uh, called him our brother. Um, now, did you know him at all? No. No. They just started t- looking at this kid's picture uh, from Haiti. Uh, had you ever been to Haiti? No. Have you still been to Haiti? Never. No. Okay. Um, And they just started referring to him as their brother. Now, you can imagine what their parents were feeling like. Um, And that wasn't in any of the plans. And eventually, uh, Colton's mother, Deborah, was able to go to uh, Haiti. And she met this little boy whose name was Ronel. And after she met him, the ball started rolling. And their family transitioned from just some random picture that these two children were referring to as their brother to, why don't we actually make him our brother? And so they started the long road of adoption. And that's a long process. If you know anybody who's adopted domestically or foreign adoption, you know that that takes years to do. And so they're in that long process. And then a hurricane comes through Haiti. You remember the massive hurricane that came uh, a few years ago that uh, just totally devastated Haiti. Well, Ronell was living in Haiti at the time, but the Parkers were in the process of adopting him. And so Ernest, uh, Colton's dad, and our student pastor flew down to Port-au-Prince, and he camped out in the American embassy with his son, his adoptive son, which wasn't fully happening yet. Uh, Ronell didn't speak any English. So you can imagine being in a foreign country in an American embassy in the middle of a disaster with a little boy that you are hoping to take home who doesn't even speak English. And Ernest and Ronell camp out in the American embassy until they get permission to come back home. They were on the news here locally. It's an amazing story. And they are an amazing family. And Ronell is an amazing kid. He's in the fifth grade, I think. Is that right? Sixth grade? Sixth grade uh, here. He's over in the student ministry right now. So Colton, uh, tell us a little bit about what that was like um, to move from a picture of a young man who you refer to brother and then you're sharing a room with him. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it was pretty um, chaotic um, going through that transition. It's like um, we're just going like saying, hey, like this is our brother to him actually being our brother. And like now he's like, living with us and it's like it's a great time right now but it was like 
going through some hard times to get him here. Actually, tell us a little bit about some of the adjustments. Uh, you told me earlier about uh, the fact that he didn't speak any English when he got here was kind of a challenge. Yeah. Um, well, like you said, like, oh, we were sharing a room and he didn't speak English, so there were some communication problems. And How many of you have ever had communications with problems with a sibling before? Yeah. And so, like, I would be trying to say something, he'd try to say something, we could understand each other, I'm getting frustrated, he's getting frustrated, we're still trying to make our point, like, go across, and it's just not working. That's fantastic, that's fantastic. We'll come back to you in just a second. Anna, um, your family's passionate about um, vulnerable children in the world, in fact, Anna's parents are, I don't know anybody more passionate than them about this situation and uh, they have opened their home up time and time again uh, for um, foster children to come in and stay with them whether it's a short term or a long term and she has an adoptive sister which came through foster care uh, who's a little bit younger than her so Anna uh, tell us about um, what it's like to have uh, a foster uh, foster siblings and an adoptive sister it's amazing like with Margot, she came on my birthday, so she was like a birthday present from God. Like, yes, best present ever. And it just makes me, like, ecstatic. It's just amazing and insane to just care and love on this child. Yeah. That's perfect. Um, but it's not always easy, right? No. No, not always easy. <laughs> but it's worth it. Love it. Uh, Desmond, uh, your story is uh, really unbelievable. And so uh, why don't you tell us the first piece of your story uh, from uh, when you were a little guy to then you ended up in the foster care system. How did, what was the story there uh, that got you into foster care? Um, growing up, me and my siblings and, or siblings and I didn't have much parental supervision. So um, we would roam around and all kind of crazy stuff. So um, one day I came home from school and my little brother, we couldn't find my little brother, Kiwan, and he was gone. And so we freaked out, we were looking for him, and the cops and CPS got involved. And so they found him, and then the next day we ended up in a cop car, because um, we they were taking us, in a, uh, taking us away. And I just remember a ton of things going through my mind, like where are we gonna go, and all this, and my little brothers are freaking out. Um, my brother Dominique tried to run away, or tried to get out the car and run. And being 11, you don't really like, uh, you don't really know who God is, I mean, you try. and. Uh, I knew who he was then. Um, I told my brother to get back in the car and that going wherever we were going, he didn't know where we were going, was the best place for us. And to say that was like, oh, freaked me out. Yeah, that's great. I mean, imagine being 11 years old. Your, your living situation has been interrupted by CPS um, and uh, you're in the squad car. They're taking you away from your parents and an 11-year-old boy has the wherewithal and the wisdom to say to his younger brother who's trying to escape, don't run, this is better for us. This is better for us to get out of this situation. That's what Desmond did. And then Desmond, um, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you is, um, you were there and you were a little bit older when your parents' rights, your birth parents' rights were terminated. Um, what's that like to, to be in that moment, to know that your parents are not gonna be able to care for you? It's very frightening. I mean, you don't know who's going to be there for you. Um, once you say you're or 11 year old, you're like your parental rights are taken away. You don't know what to think. Um, you just know you're going with people you've never seen before in your life, and that's crazy. So. That's good. Um, Colton, 
Um, what advice would you give any teenagers or, or, or younger in here whose parents are maybe thinking about uh, doing the adoption thing? What advice would you give to those teenagers? Um, to be excited about it and, like, engage yourself in that and um, just kind of, like, be ready for anything because anything can happen. That's great. That's great. And Anna, same question to you, um, but with the fostering, because that's a much different thing, adoption and foster care. Uh, so what, would you, uh, what, what advice would you give? Like I said earlier, try not to get jealous if parents are getting, giving them more attention, it seems. Not speaking for myself. <laughs> um, and try to make them feel comfortable. Like, don't scare them like, by giving them too much attention, but don't just ignore them. And also, don't get jealous if they don't get in certain consequences that you think they deserve if they do something wrong. Because there are rules regarding what your parents can and can't do. So. so but you're not speaking from any personal experience in that. No. No, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. Um, okay, so Desmond, let's pick up with your story. Um, you're. you're you're now in the foster care system. You end up in a place called Boys and Girls Country, which is out in Waller County. Amazing place. Um, a lot of kids living together in houses with house parents. And um, that, was a, that was an important season for you. Uh, what did um, people come alongside of you and, and do to be a benefit to you in that season while you were kind of in this foster care system living out at Boys and Girls Country? What were some of the things that um, adults did or the church did that meant a lot to you? And that season, um, just taking time or just taking time out of their day or their week to come visit you was nice. Um, knowing someone cared and loved you is good. Um, I had two house parents. One was Miss Terrahaus and one was Mr. Glenn. And Miss Terrahaus always promised she wouldn't leave until I got adopted or graduated. So the day I got adopted, she quit. She was like out of it. She was gone. <laughs> and so, um, which means you were either amazing or awful. Yeah. <laughs> either way. So, and that was cool. And just knowing someone cared and was there was. It, Heartwarming. Yes. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Uh, Colton, last question for you. Um, we don't always look to younger people for advice, but I think we probably should. If, if some of these folks in here were considering walking down the same road that your parents walked down to move from adopting as something that's good for somebody else, but not necessarily for me, to then, well, maybe it is for us. What advice would you give to these adults if they were thinking and praying about that kind of thing? Well, to pray to God and make sure that it was right for them. And if it is right, like, seek it out and, like, just, like, be ready for anything that could happen at any time. That's great. Uh, Anna, last question for you. Um, you yourself have adopted this passion for vulnerable children, so it's not just something that your parents are into, but now as a teenager it's something that you are into. What do you, I mean, you don't have to sign up for anything right now, but as you look out into your future, what role do you think orphan care is going to have? Um, well, it's probably going to be a really big role. Um, I want to adopt all my children, like no biological. Um, and I want to be a foster parent. And um, sorry, my notes kind of fell in the toilet. So um, I don't know for sure what my career is going to be, but it involving orphan care is like definitely a possibility. And I want to go on lots of mission trips where we may work with orphan care. And just I have yet to know what that orphan care will 
be in my life specifically. Wait, that was wrong. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yes, you don't know what you're, you're going to do specifically. You just know you want to be engaged in the problem. Yes. Perfect. Um, and then Desmond, uh, last question for you. So you know what it's like to, to be taken away from your parents, but you also have been adopted, so you know what it's like to receive new parents. And you were in the courtroom not too long ago um, when the gavel went down and the papers got signed and you got a new mom and dad. Uh, tell us about what that experience has been like. It's amazing. I mean, to know there's going to be somewhere there to take care of you for like pretty much the rest of your life. Um, to know that they care and love you, um, and it's awesome. I mean, you you're 15. You don't really get adopted when you're 15. Um, not many people get adopted at an older age, and so knowing that you're adopted, it's like, well, I didn't know that could ever happen. Yeah, so That's great. And what does it mean to you now to be Brian and Krista Merrill's son? Uh, just good things and bad things. <laughs> 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 so we're going to send a family counselor over to the Merrill's house, apparently. Um, no, no. Well, first meeting them, they were, they were awesome. My dad was like, oh, he wanted to show you he loved you, but he didn't want to be oh, too warming. And then my mom, she was like overwhelming. She was like, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's kind of weird. So knowing that they were there for me um, and that they took the time out and they were going to take care of all my other brothers. I have four brothers and sisters. And so to know they had three or four in their family already and take care of all of us was insane. So that was good. That's fantastic. Round of applause for these guys. Why don't you uh, turn, take your Bible, turn to 2 Samuel, and we'll finish up. 2 Samuel chapter 9, we'll start in verse 1. Second Samuel 9 tells the story of Mephibosheth. So I don't know if any of you are getting ready to have a little one and you need a name. <laughs> but I want to push Mephibosheth forward as an option today. But it's a story in Second Samuel chapter 9 about King David and Mephibosheth. Uh, King David, you're probably more familiar with his story. He was a shepherd boy, just a nobody. And God saw him. Which may be an encouragement to any of you today. You may feel like you are so far off of God's radar screen, but He sees you and He knows where you are. And He knew where David was and He picked David to be the future king of Israel. The problem was is that there already was a king in Israel named Saul and, and so secretly he's anointed as future king by the prophet Samuel. And you remember the story of David... David and Goliath, David becomes a mighty warrior. And, and so he ends up having a, a, this complicated relationship with King Saul. King Saul either loved him because he was defeating Israel's enemies, or he hated him because King Saul could see the handwriting on the wall. And, and I think he knew that one day David was going to be king instead of him or instead of his family. And so King Saul over and over again would try to kill David. But King Saul had a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan loved David. In fact, the scripture says that Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. Imagine loving somebody that much, that I love you, 
the way I love myself. That was the way that Jonathan loved and cared for his friend David. And so he made this amazing covenant with David. And he, where he takes off all of his princely robes because Jonathan was the future king of Israel, but Jonathan knew, no, David is God's anointed. David is the one. He takes off all of the stuff that makes him a prince, makes him royalty, and he puts it on David in this amazing act of selflessness and humility. To say, you are the God's, you are God's chosen one. And I am with you all the way. And in that, Jonathan asked David to make him a promise. That as long as Jonathan was alive and as long as Jonathan's descendants were alive, if it was in David's power to protect them, that he would. Because in their culture, we'll see this later, when a transfer of kingdoms happened, the old kingdom has to go. And they have to go away forever so that the new kingdom could come. And what Jonathan is, is asking is, please protect me and my family and my descendants if you can. David eventually does become king and rules over all of Israel. And this is what it says in verse 1. Now David asked, is there anyone remaining from Saul's family that I can show kindness to because of Jonathan? There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family I can show the kindness of God to? And Ziba said to the king, There is still Jonathan's son who is lame in both feet. And the king asked him, Where is he? And Ziba answered the king, You'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Maker, son of Amiel. So King David had him brought from the house of Maker, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, bowed down to the ground, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness because of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work for the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And he was lame in both feet. Just a few things that I want you to notice this morning as we wrap up Orphan Sunday. I want you to notice that David obligated himself to Mephibosheth. There was no one that could lay pressure on King David. He was the king. I mean, who was going to force his hand? Mephibosheth was off the radar screen. But David remembered Jonathan. And he said, Is there anyone left in Jonathan's house for me to show kindness to? You know, 
most likely a vulnerable child is not going to knock on your door. Say, hello, Mr. and Mrs. I don't have enough food to eat. I don't have anybody who can look after me. I don't have a mom. I don't have a dad. I don't have anybody trying to secure a future for me. Can you help me? That's not going to happen. No one's going to be able to force your hand to step into the arena when you can't do everything, but you can do something. The question is, will you and I, will we obligate ourselves? Will we come to a moment in remembrance of God's kindness to us where we say, who can I show kindness to? Will followers of Jesus follow Jesus and obligate themselves and promise themselves and give themselves to those who need it the most? David wasn't forced. He wasn't pressured. He willingly stepped into the moment and obligated himself. And then you notice that David restores all of the things that should have been Mephibosheth. He gives him back his grandfather's land. See, when there's a transition of kingdoms from one one monarchy to the next monarchy, it's not usually peaceful. And so everything that the former monarchy used to own comes underneath the new monarchy. So everything that was once King Saul's and King Saul's family from generations past was now suddenly in the control of David because David was the king. And so when he brings Mephibosheth in, he says, I'm going to restore to you what should have been yours. That's what we want to do. We want to restore to vulnerable children what should have been theirs. You know, every child on planet Earth should know what it's like to be loved by a man cares for them, has a father. Every child on planet earth should know the warm hug of a mother. Every child should know what it's like to wake up and know that you're going to have enough food for the day. And every child should know what it's like to go to sleep and know everybody who loves you at that moment is going to love you and be there for you when you wake up. Every child should know what it's like to play catch with their dad. Every child should know what it's like to hear those comforting words from a mother when you are hurt and broken. And as followers of Jesus, when it's in our power to restore what should have been theirs, we should do it. it's in your ability to restore what's been taken and do what David did and step into the arena and say I can't do everything but I can give you back this thing which should have never been taken from you and the most powerful thing in this story to me is not that David did something or even that David restored some fields back to Mephibosheth. 
The most powerful part of the story is that David brings him all the way from Lodabar, literally the middle of nowhere, from a borrowed house, not just to a field back in Israel, but to the table of the king. Pulled up a chair at the family table for Mephibosheth. We know what that's like. That's what God has done for us. The scripture says that you and I, we were far off, cut off from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning we weren't the people of God. We were rebellious, twisted, broken people who, when given the opportunity, we chose against God instead of choosing Him. We were far away, captives to sin and death. But Jesus Christ loved us. And from the foundation of the world, He chose to adopt us, meaning His greatest joy before He did anything was to say, I want Him and I want her in my family. Jesus Christ came to earth, wrapped on human flesh as the Son of God, laid down His righteous life on the cross, was buried, and three days later, God raised Him up from the dead. And now it's possible in Christ for all those who are far off to come near. Not to some field in the vicinity of God to come into the house of the Father and pull up a chair at the Father's table. That's what it means to be a son and daughter of God. More than a servant. I would get servants. I would get God saying, I'm going to take this broken, sinful humanity. I'm going to make them all my slaves. They're going to do my bidding from their first day until their last day. I would understand that. But to say, I'm going to call you more than servants. I'm going to call you sons and daughters. There's a place at the table for you. That's the power of the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not that you are invited into some religion which claims to be the best religion out of all the religions. Being a Christian means you get a seat at the table in the family of God. Some of you have a seat at the table, but you've been acting as if all God thinks of you is a servant out in some field. And you feel like you are outside of the house, looking in, wishing and wanting and waiting. But if you have believed in the name that is above every name, you have a seat at the table. You know, in adoption, when the gavel goes down, when the name gets signed on the dotted line, that's forever. And that's what God has done with us. There's a book of life. And when you believed in the name of Jesus, 
down forever. Now, some of us are like, well, if I were a king, I would do all that stuff too. David was a king. He had unlimited resources. There was nothing that he couldn't do. He had a palace for crying out loud. I mean, he's got more than enough rooms. He could have brought in way more than Mephibosheth. If I had a palace, I might be open to that too. I love Deuteronomy chapter 24 because in it, it, God is telling the Israelites that when they go to collect their crops and some of them fall to the ground, they should just leave what falls to the ground. For a few groups of people, the foreigner who doesn't have anything, for the widow and for the fatherless. What he was telling them is that there should always be enough margin in our lives to care for those who need it most. And so I get that you're busy. Busy is a badge of honor in our culture. But you should never be too busy for a vulnerable child. I get that you are financially strapped and it feels tight. I get it. But you should never be so strapped that there's not enough margin and leftover on the ground for a vulnerable child to come and find what they need. I get that you don't have a mansion. I get that you don't have unlimited space, unlimited time, unlimited energy. But you know the love of a perfect father. And when we look out into the world and we see those who need to experience that love the most, we should want to, not have to, not obligated to, not our duty, but we should want to step in and do what we can do. Because you know what it's like to be brought from far off to the table.